1: For as long as I can remember, July has meant one thing. A daily date with the tour on television. From the earliest days of setting the VHS to record the Channel 4 highlights presented improbably by Richard Keyes to its more recent home on ITV with Gary Imlach and Chris Boardman, even the occasional trip to Eurosport, where the much-missed David Duffield would be digressing about tricycle racing or cheese, it's become for so many of us an integral part of summer. Everything's different this year, though. On this edition, we catch up with one of the key voices of the tour coverage, Ruler columnist Ned Bolting. This is the Ruler Conversations podcast, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Ned Bolting hasn't spent a July at home since 2003 when he was first introduced to the weird alternative reality of the Tour de France. Since 2016, he and David Miller have occupied the commentary seats which for so long belonged to Phil Liggett and the late Paul Sherwin. So for him in particular, this is a July like no other.
2: Yeah, no Tour de France Um, and so uh, I mean, you know, I'm not the first or the last to say how odd it is. I mean, I kind of feel like I've been talking about this ever since we all went into lockdown and uh, you know in March yeah it's 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 profoundly uh, unexpectedly affecting me actually um kind of just throws into relief how much uh, a part of all our lives I think the race has become you know um for all the for all the value uh, and the uh, and the love we hold for the other great races in the calendar uh, July and the tour just stand apart don't they and uh it, it's kind of unimaginable that the month is just passing us by. What is it now, the 6th of July when we're recording this and where would we be and kind of slightly agonising to f- think about that. I, it's been, funnily enough, in, in all this wind, like it feels like it's in London it's been windy for a week, doesn't it? And every time I step out my front door, all I can think of is the hot wind and this kind of the notion of how great the racing might have been. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just
1: the racing especially for uh british fans it's the television as well isn't it it's that whole month well clearly not for you because you you um you've not been watching it for a long time but uh, for most of us you know we get home or whatever and or you know have an afternoon off and just watch the tour have you actually managed to watch it because people have been re-showing some old tours haven't they have you watched any of that
2: yeah yeah i have actually um and it's been really interesting, because like you quite quite rightly say, it's, it's a very obvious point, but perhaps it's a little bit surprising. It, um, I've never seen a highlights show. I've never seen an ITV highlights show before, the, you know, the ones that get really watched at seven o'clock in the evening. So ITV have been re-showing the, the 2018 tour stage by stage and day by day in their entirety. And um, I haven't watched all of them, but I've watched three or four. That's been very interesting. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I hadn't appreciated because uh, you're so focused on your bit of the job, what, what I do. I hadn't really appreciated necessarily all the work that my colleagues, Daniel Freib, doing the interviews and the little, the little features and um and Gary Imlach do as well. And uh, yeah, it's um I can totally get it. I mean, there'll come a day when, for whatever reason, whether it's in my control or not, um I, I'm no longer commentating on the Tour de France. You know, I'm very realistic about that and I uh, I'm almost looking forward to the the, the, a different function of um, being a spectator and just enjoying its... Um, I can see how compulsive it might get if you just sit down and make that part of your your daily life throughout July. And
1: we might actually be getting, uh, against the odds, a Tour de France this year.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think last time we spoke, Ian, I was... Very, uh, whenever that was, it was early in lockdown. It might have even have been in March for the, for the podcast. I remember saying to you, because you asked me, what are our chances of seeing any racing? And I was... I was incredibly downbeat about the prospect of it happening at all. And I almost felt that, um, you know, wrongly, perhaps with hindsight, that it was slightly irresponsible of ASO to be kind of talking up their chances of holding the race at all in 2020. And I, well, touch wood, I mean, they haven't happened yet, but but progress has been made and um, they have stuck to their guns. However, however much ASO might be perceived in some quarters to have been throwing their weight around a little bit in the rescheduled um, uh, season, it does seem to have come together in some in some shape or other, and um, I think that's quite I think that's quite remarkable. I'm quite surprised by it, and I I think it'll be um, should it happen, it'll be I mean a year's racing that people will be talking about for a, for a hundred years to come.
1: Well, there's so many weird things about it, aren't there? Not just the tour being so late, but also the you know the other classics being at a different time of the year, Paris Roubaix being late in the autumn. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, in theory, I'm going off in about uh, three weeks' time. I'm I'm, I'm supposed to be travelling to Italy to work for RCS, for the race organisers, and commentate for what's called the World Fees on Uh And then a few days later, Milano-Torino, which is normally a, a, a race in the autumn, um, but actually it's happening earlier than it normally does. And Bianchi obviously, is happening months too late. And then a couple of days after that, uh milan sanremo <laughs> um and it's it is strange because it was it was Stradibianchi, if you remember where uh, around which the entire collapse of the season crystallized
1: yeah, absolutely because I was in Belgium for the opening of the classics, and everyone was looking forward to Stradibianchi the next week, and it became very clear uh talking to all the teams that it just wasn't gonna happen
2: i mean they they really tried to force it through, but don't forget r c s had You know, just the week before Stradibianchi, they'd seen and witnessed the collapse of um, the UAE tour that was curtailed and ended up with the teams uh, being quarantined in the hotel for days on end. Um, uh, But they were desperate to try and get Stradibianchi over the line. And the closer it got, I mean, I can't remember how many days before it was almost like 24 hours, 36 hours before the race was when they finally threw in the towel and said it ain't going to happen. It was really kind of dramatic stuff, and then and then it just shut down. You know, it came juddering to a halt, didn't it? Like a like a big diesel engine stalling. It just felt like it was. Um, we dropped off to the edge of a cliff. It seems an odd quirk of fate that, uh, in theory at least, and I am holding my breath that all this actually does happen. That that's where I'm. That's where I'm heading to. That is the race that will restart the world tour um, for both the men and the women. Will be Strade Bianchi. and it's. Um, you know, due to take place right at the beginning of August.
1: And The other big discussion uh, during lockdown has been about, uh, certainly in the UK, has been about you know, transforming transport after uh, when things begin to get back to normal um, and getting people on bikes, getting people out of cars, getting people out of, uh, out of vans, etc. From your point of view, we both live in South London, has there been any sort of evidence of that really so far?
2: Very significant evidence and, um, you know, very, really very significant changes, I, I think, Ian, it's, um, it's difficult to, uh, because public, tra- I mean, it's quite a complicated situation in London, because public transport is so good, relatively, in London, and because the numbers of people who use it in a non-COVID way in normal times are so enormous, that when people are told not to use it and they take that uh, advice to heart and literally the numbers of people using public transport are still tiny compared to what they were, then that's an awful lot of people who've got to get around uh, not using the public transport network. Now, inevitably, that has led in recent weeks to a huge increase in the amount of cars on the road. So gone are those uh, wonderful quiet streets that we had throughout April Um, and uh, the levels of traffic, you'll have noticed it as well, I think are exceed what they were pre-lockdown now by some distance. And so if you're very impassioned about active travel and people getting on bikes and and walking, it's quite tempting to sort of wring your hands in despair at what you're seeing. And admittedly, it isn't great how people have started to use the cars, but it's masking the fact that there are also huge numbers, more people who are walking and cycling. It's just that it looks a little bit hidden now. The anecdotal evidence from across uh, across the scene is that there are a significant number of people who discovered or rediscovered cycling during lockdown and are sticking with the program. Um, it'd be nice to get some hard data on that. Uh, but, you know, the, the, all the feedback coming from Mark, who uh, looks after my bike at Ladywell Cycles at the end of the road, um, is that he has a waiting list of weeks just to repair people's bikes and get them on the road? Um, supply chains for components and new bikes have completely dried up. Uh, you know that he's having to charge customers three times the normal price for inner tubes because the demand is so high and the supply is so so low at the moment. So don't despair if you think everyone's just got back in cars. There are also a huge number of people who have who have um, rediscovered cycling.
1: Now, one of your other roles is president of the Hernhill Hill Velodrome Trust um, in South London. And obviously that's, along with so many other sporting venues, has, has really suffered. Uh, so many other cycling venues as well has really suffered in the past few months because it's effectively lost a lot of its income um, during its most profitable months. But there are signs of recovery there as well, aren't there?
2: Well, you've been on the track, Ian, to your great credit, and I haven't yet, but uh, tentatively... Racing in a in a in a in a social distance style has uh, has resumed uh, on on the track. Uh, I think it probably c- can can build quite a head of steam now. And um, so long as within that beautiful new pavilion that Hern Velodrome has, people are sensible and the right measures are in place, then um, I'm sure it will be up and running again uh, uh, in, in its fullest sense. But you're right. You know, it's Hernhill Velodrome relies uh, hugely on the subscriptions and the payments that uh, riders make to use the track on a on a daily basis. And that's been a massive hit. They did have um, the good fortune to sign a couple of new sponsorship deals just before COVID kind of really kicked in, which was immensely good timing on, on their behalf. So it could have been worse, I, th- I suspect, uh, for the velodrome. And, and, you know, the one thing I hope on on its behalf is that the amount of goodwill and affection that uh, that the place attracts um, will, will stand it in good stead as it tries to pull itself out of this crisis. Um, but you tell me, and I mean, what's what is the because you have been on the track? How does it work down there now?
1: Well, at the moment, and it's changing pretty much uh, day to day, week to week. Um, you are limited to uh, five riders, or in some sessions, ten. Basically, five riders per coach, and which normally means one coach, five riders on the track. And on a 450 meter track, you it's possible to spread out. Um, and keep a safe distance although there's very little evidence and there's a lot of um, debate about exactly what a safe distance is and I'm sure this will be something that will be discussed uh, when professional racing resumes as well Um, is two meters or 1.5 meters from rider to rider safe when you're traveling relatively fast maybe into a headwind how far back when you cough or sneeze or you know, we're banned from spitting quite rightly but um, how far back does any potential infection uh, reach um but once you get on the track um even with only four other riders there it's actually really hard um, after a you know, many years of doing it, not to slot right in behind the uh, rider in front because it makes it a lot easier as well. So it's it's interesting and it's going to be, um, and uh, there's a lot of extra precautions in place about no money changing hands, no um, physical money changing hands, uh, disinfecting, sanitising all the facilities after every session. Uh, Everyone has to bring their own equipment. Everyone has to be self-sufficient it's good as with everything it's going to change everything but um it's changing week by week and of course one of the really interesting things is it's not just world class racing world level racing that's going to resume um at some point and fairly soon by the sound of it um lower level regional and national racing is going to uh, is going to resume as well
2: yeah, I mean, it, 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 they they will all take their lead, I think, from the from the biggest the bigger races in the world, and it'll be fascinating to see how how the big races, the World Tour races, do go about. I mean, there's no way you, you know the bunch will be the bunch. Although although I have to say the first um, the first European UCI race, so Europe Tour race, uh, resumed yesterday, and uh, off the top of my head, its name eludes me. It was a one day race, I think, in Belgium, uh, won by Florian Seneschal of uh, De Cunhik Quickstep. And it wasn't televised. Someone just got a shot of the the winning rider coming over the line and Seneschal, don't know how he'd attacked, but he'd obviously launched some big attack some way out. But they all came over the line in very social distance measure. So it wasn't a bunch sprint, you know. That said, it, it seems like uh, Hernhill Velodrome, from what you say, are taking their responsibilities extremely seriously. And I'm sure that The science, one way or another, will have to relent uh, and, you know, we'll we'll have to get back to something like normal. I mean, these things are these things are all about the prevalence of the virus in the community, I guess, ultimately. And if it's deemed to be shrinkingly low, then a reasonable risk can be resumed, I guess. Very important that everyone sticks to the guidelines. Nothing irritates any of us more, I think, than um, than people flouting the guidelines at the moment. But, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see the the, the role that the the world tour races play in in sort of shifting the regulations further back down the ladder to allow people to do the same as them, I suppose.
1: Well, thanks, Ned. Thanks for joining us. Um, And let's hope we do see world tour racing uh, very soon. And let's uh, hope that we do hear you commenting on the you and David um, commenting on the tour. Thanks very much, Ian. I'm crossing my fingers too. Ned Bolting. And the race that Ned was talking about there was the GP Wehrmacht Sport, which can make a reasonable claim, with some quibbling and debate, to being the first professional road race in Europe post the COVID lockdown. Remember the name. It'll come up in a cycling trivia quiz this Christmas. The delayed Tour de France issue of Rouleur magazine is on its way soon, featuring at least three weeks' worth of fantastic content, including profiles of Thibaut Pinot and Bernard Tevenet, and contributions from Rouleur writers including Ned, Orla Chenoui and Romain Bardet. If you're not already a subscriber, go to the Rouleur website and sign up now. You're listening to the Rouleur Conversations podcast, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community.
2: So I'm Toby Taupitz, the CEO and co-founder of LACA. We've been going for over two years by now and we can confidently say that we are 25% cheaper than our competitors. So you save money with LACA but's getting a unique and much better experience. One thing we're really, really proud of is that we're doing all claims in-house. So when you file a claim with us, it doesn't go to a third-party administrator in the middle of nowhere. It sits with us, with our claims handlers, who are no insurance people, but are actual um, bike mechanics. Fairly unique, we believe, and that really gives us a unique take on the customer experience.
1: And you can find out more about Laka's unique approach to bicycle insurance on their website, laka.co.uk. And we heard there from their Bolting about the way the cycling industry, certainly in the UK, has seen a boom in recent months. We're joined by Releur's Miles Baker-Clark, who, amongst other things, looks after the Emporium section of the website. So how has business been? It's a
0: typical case of people sat at home shopping. I mean, I'm one of them. I've done, it's probably what I've done most of this lockdown. My bank balance says similar, but I mean, people have just loved everything that we've been doing and it's been it's been really nice I mean as you'll you'll be aware Ian and and listeners will be too but with the kind of shortfall in advertising across the magazine it's been really great to see subscribers and non-subscribers and loads and loads of new customers come through the Emporium um, find something cool to buy and to enjoy and and to peruse and it kind of really helps from my perspective because you you feel like hey you know I've I've Got together this cool selection of stuff and i think it's cool but does anyone else and um you see a lot of agreement and it's really cool so yeah i mean it's been it's been really positive
1: and people are still bringing out new products new bikes new bits of kit are they
0: listen people's kind of schedule of releases hasn't uh hasn't completely stopped they've still got things that they need to get out and sell and there's been a few really cool bikes re- um, released recently new gravel bikes, um, there's some really cool stuff on the horizon which we can't talk about just yet but um, from some of the big players but recently we had a, a really cool 3T in the office. Uh, they do a number of really cool bikes and over the years they've they've really innovated uh, and we've got one of their latest releases in the next issue um, of the magazine and it's the 3T Explorer Race which we've just actually given away one uh, to a, one lucky lucky subscriber but otherwise i mean people are still bringing out loads and loads of cool products i mean we just had a drop of exceptional merchandise from campagnolo which if you're a campagnolo fan it's just kind of must-have equipment you know there's t-shirts and um, new colours on their famous corkscrew and kind of bits and pieces for the man cave which I've, I've stocked up on liberally.
1: They've got some of those uh, workshop signs haven't they and shop signs uh, which they're selling now. I I went on eBay years ago and paid a fortune for one of those Campagnolo spoken here signs but now their uh, Campagnolo have realised the value of their archive I guess and they're, uh, and they're selling them themselves, aren't they?
0: Absolutely. I mean, they those are probably some of the, the best sellers of everything we stock of theirs. For good reason, you yeah, know. They're so iconic. They just make great gifts as well. For someone who you're just not sure who you're going to buy for, it's just perfect. So they're yeah, real pleasure to work with them on that on that side of things as well. And but yeah, I mean, generally business is good. Ian. Um, and and um, there's got lots of lots of cool stuff coming through, um, new brands coming on board, and just generally creating this kind of place place to be for. A great cycling gear.
1: Oh, one thing I noticed as a uh, glasses wearer is that RAFA have brought out a whole new range of uh, glasses and uh, yeah, both uh, sunglasses but also the thing with the RAFA frames is a lot of them you can put prescription glasses in as well.
0: Yeah we um, we were talking about it amongst the team earlier in the week because um, they, they released them um, uh, just last week and to a great reception I understand but yeah there's four new models out and they just really really caught my interest because there's a real selection of you know really nice combinations of different lenses with different frames so you can go everything from kind of subtle black with a pink lens to you know bright pink lens and and completely iridium lenses to the front of them so you get a real a real mix depending on which frame you're going for and you've got the kind of traditional balance of raffa pink and more kind of subtle styling and it's really nice to see them do a second bash at the glasses market because there's, there's something for everyone there I think you've got your um you mentioned you had your eyes on the classic the more classic style
1: yeah, I had a pair of the original Rafa Classic glasses, which were huge, but I quite like them. And I've got a pair on at the moment of uh, their City glasses with uh, prescription lenses in. And uh, I quite fancy a pair of their new Classic glasses for both uh, on and off the bike.
0: Good shout. I mean, with the, those glasses we did with um, Alba Optics um, last year were just phenomenally well received and you know to the point where some of the ruler staff actually missed out on a pair because they just kind of just zinged out and um that's just a ridiculously light pair of glasses 19 grams they are um so yeah you know cyclists have got a lot of choice of of cool shades to go with these days so um you can never have too many pairs
1: and i mentioned earlier on the uh tour de france issue which of course has been delayed but that's that's coming soon to subscribers isn't it
0: yeah, so that's going to land kind of towards the end of July. And I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a surreal issue because with the tour postponed for the first time in, well, kind of near memory, it's um, it's great to pay a bit of homage to that great race. But um, in traditional ruler style, we don't go straight for the uh for the simple story we're always trying to tell those kind of unique human stories and um yeah it's set to be a fantastic issue so yeah subscribers should start receiving that towards the end of july we've not had our copies yet so the jury's still out on on what that cover's gonna look like in person but i tell you what i reckon it's gonna be a cracker we've got um one of the regular Uh, photographers who we use uh, his name's Sean it's been a hell of a a laugh putting that together with him and uh yeah I I think subscribers are really going to enjoy it and I mean for Desire in the next issue we've had some really really nice bikes I mentioned the 3T the new specialized diverge we've got and we've we've uh, hung that from a tree and um of course we've got our new section within the magazine which is um Desire Innovators and Details so I'm really looking forward to seeing what subscribers think. And um, of course, if you haven't subscribed, you can always pop into the Emporium and order a single copy and see what you think.
1: Thanks, Miles. That's it from this edition of Ruler Conversations. There'll be a Long Reads podcast along soon. And next time we speak, there may even be some racing to talk about. Until then, take care.